Good morning, all. I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 23, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix returns to the show to take up voting right themes amidst some distressing drumbeats of voter intimidation as the country's general election this fall draws nearer and the racial divide opens wider. We might even get down to some dicey double standards, time permitting. Over the second portion of the show, we'll check back in with Kennedy Commission Project Manager Linda Tang with an update on the disappearing act of affordable housing stock in Costa Mesa. Today, a motel room. Tomorrow, a deluxe rental unit. Folks, we'll be right back after a short station break with both Shanna and Dam Phoenix. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the show. Everybody, thanks for staying tuned. My first guest is UCI political science professor Davin Phoenix, the go-to academic on the troubling voter disenfranchisement afoot in this general election presidential campaign. Professor Davin Phoenix's research interests include racial attitudes, affect and behavior, public opinion, political communication, urban politics, and mobilization of marginalized groups. No doubt, he's the, the man of the hour. His current work is on minority executives in the U.S., from U.S. mayors to the White House. He completed his undergraduate work in political science at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, then both his graduate student and joint degree program for public policy and political science and Ph.D. at the University of Michigan. He's here to comment on the implications near and longer term of the GOP presidential nominees charges of a rigged general election outcome. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Devin Phoenix. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, pleasure, but as you, as we talked about in advance, it's very important to commiserate about the the nefarious trends and uh, play here with this. For me, the goal is that absolutely we get to a hundred percent of voter participation, and any time it there's any kind of discouragement of that goal, it 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 wounds me. And Davin's got as much, if not more, skin in this game, and we'll we'll hope to give it all uh, coverage here. We have in play a host of factors that threaten to target some very specific demographics of voters who incidentally do not look like the people turning out at the Cleveland GOP convention. Ongoing uh, GOP charges of fraud, U.S. Supreme Court unraveling protections of the Voting Rights Act, states reorganizing voters' registration and turnout laws requirements are all happening. It's like the... It's it's the perfect tsunami and an earthquake and a, a forest fire all at once. Now we can add to that the trumped up charge of fraud by the GOP nominee in Pennsylvania about a week and a half, two weeks ago. States where voter laws are encumbering, if not outright disenfranchising citizens from voting. So, so Davin Phoenix, do you concern yourself more with uh, this discouraging uh, voters to turn out or endangering? voters at the polling place or both? It's hard to distinguish from both because they really work uh, together to serve the same purpose, which is to ultimately uh, discourage people from counting votes or uh, create new procedural hurdles that cause people to have to cast provisional ballot votes that likely won't ultimately be counted towards the state total. But we have to step back a bit and think about the context, both for this rhetoric about the uh, possibility of a rigged election and these rule changes that have taken place in the last four years or so across the country, instituting these strict voting ID requirements. And also in the case of uh, some elements of the North Carolina law, which has been for the time being invalidated by courts, uh, restricting uh 
elements to increase turnout that are primarily utilized by black voters, such as same day registration and <clears throat> Sunday voting, weekend voting, those types of actions. So to think about the context, we're thinking, of course, of uh, a black president being elected the last two election cycles, but also a steady decline in the share of the overall voting electorate that is comprised of white voters. And in 2012, for the first time in history, the turnout of white voters being exceeded by the turnout of a minority group, in this case, African-Americans. So when we think about this broader context in which in an increasingly diversifying society, which translates to an increasingly diversified voter base, we have to wonder whether these types of actions and rhetorical um, contrivances are in direct uh, response to this declining power of the white vote. So it's particularly troubling to hear uh, Donald Trump say, oh, the election might be rigged, because it's not only... Oh, he got, I don't think he even equivocates it. I think he <laughs> says it's going to be rigged, and he says some uh, some people are going to try to vote up to 15 different times. I mean, he's just like pulling out all the stops. Sure, and that's incredibly troubling, because so many people of color, both blacks, Latinos, and even younger people have to go through so many additional hurdles and barriers simply to cast a vote that counts, whether it's a matter of polling machines being removed from districts that have uh, higher registered numbers of minorities or these laws that say you can't vote if you have a college ID. You need this particular type of driver's license or this particular type of ID, and people of color are disproportionately less likely to have those. So given all of the additional costs and bur- hurdles that people have to overcome to cast their vote, to now devalue and delegitimize that effort that they've made and to cast aspersions on that vote, I think is particularly damaging to the political psyche of these communities. Well, and so you have to think about Trump's end game because these polls, particularly in states he talked about like Pennsylvania, clearly indicate that he's trailing the Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton. And he isn't the first to trail. There, there hasn't been a Republican winning in that state since 1988. So it's sort of like really that's right. Pulling it all out of there. So to delegitimize, even before the votes are cast, the outcome of the vote in that state, I think, is particularly damaging to our idealized notions of all votes mattering and all votes counting equally. If you can't accept the legitimate outcome of a vote and you can cast dispersions, particularly on minority communities, what signal does that send to uh, minority communities that we claim we want to be full and equal members of our body politic? And being a part of the body politic, too, is about staying tapped into it, being informed about policy in the political arena. And so this may also discourage citizens from participating in terms of preparing and boning up on policies and, and being very literate with what the, the what policies do for them what what they can weigh in with i mean it sort of it trims a lot around that's absolutely right this type these types of rhetorical devices and laws and policies and procedures that discourage or make more challenging a vote don't simply have the effect of impacting turnout but just as you said they impact people's general relationship to politics they impact people's sense of belongingness within politics and so that has far-reaching implications we're talking about people that not only feel discouraged from casting a vote but from paying attention to the matters going on in their community from feeling they have a voice uh feeling discouraged from contacting their elected officials or taking part in community meetings and taking part in just the fabric of civil society. Uh, So this goes Mm -hmm. far beyond just this matter of showing up at the polling place. We're talking about people feeling integrated or isolated and excommunicated from their own very real communities. (sighs) So a concern I have along with this is there's uh, we're talking a bit about the the near term does this also signal to you a, a trying to kind of formulate a farm team for voter intimidators you kind of, oh man that was so easy to do this year you know we can get better at it next election cycle is that something you think about it is certainly something I think about, especially when thinking about uh, instances in which people from minority communities in various states, I'm thinking uh, specifically about black voters in Ohio in 2004, yeah. facing extremely long lines in their districts and finding that procedural rule changes that they were not aware of changed their longtime polling location to another place. And so many blacks found themselves in line for 
hours and hours to cast a vote. Many of them found they were only able to cast provisional ballots, which they doubted would be counted toward the total vote. So there's certainly historical precedent for this idea of these rule changes and these types of monitors that not only work to invalidate and intimidate votes, but to actually kind of change the rules, like lift the carpet out from under people's feet so that their votes aren't counted. And so I do wonder, as with anything Trump says, right, what his real thinking is behind it. Uh, is he even aware that he's tapping into this historical precedent of people monitoring and challenging the votes cast legitimately by minority communities? Or is he simply trying to um, gain more people under his tent, under this guise of, oh, be a voting monitor, right? Just to kind of bring them into the fold. There's a great deal of questions about whether he even thinks he can win the election or whether he's looking to build up a media empire from this kind of and we'll get, I'm gonna, I've got some into. media empire questions here uh, in uh, in a bit and and you we both were talking bringing up the the judicial rulings that are so-called governing some of the electoral law but the it makes for a moving target what is the rule of the land of for not only do we have it decentralized on the state level, we also have it decentralized on the county level. It's That's the right. counties that organize this. So it's not really clear. I don't think I could pass too many quizzes on what exactly is allowed in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois. Illinois is also in play. And that, folks, you notice there's a little battleground uh, continuing sort of red thread through That's all right. of these. So uh, it's it, it's a confounding problem having I – mean, Voters' rights activists are reassured somewhat by the the rulings that are rolling back the prohibitive state laws. But uh, tell us what you think about the complications of implementing the moving target regulations. That's really a critical observation. Just thinking about the phalanx of rules and regulations that really are up to these very localized jurisdictions. Without or in the absence of a consistent across-the-board set of rules that define the procedures for how people vote, uh, there is uh, a lot of maybe questionable rules regulations that can be under the level of scrutiny. This speaks to a broader structural issue with our election system and the great amount of burden we place on our voters compared to other uh, comparable democracies, right? There's so much at play and there's so many... Not only changes from district to district, from county to county, but even over time. So you can stay in the same county from one election cycle to another right, and find right. yourself under another phalanx of rules and Byzantine regulations and complications. And so that certainly makes it harder for watchdogs to keep track of whether these rules are systematically uh, targeting certain communities that are more vulnerable or not. And I think that is... Hopefully a discussion that we begin to allow to circulate uh, more greatly because we can't simply rely on the courts to be the last watchdog, particularly in light of the um, weakening of the Voting Rights Act from that uh, Supreme Court case, I believe, 2012. We need to have more people be vigilant about holding their state and local officials accountable for being transparent in the legislative changes that they're making to voting laws. And we need to have those people hold people accountable that are legislating these laws and say, no, we're not going to support these legislative changes that make it more difficult for people from this part of town to vote. For those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on 88.9 FM in Irvine on KUCI and streaming on the web around the world at KUCI.org. My guest is Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor. We're talking about the general election climate. And I wanted to find out, do you think that... All right, the, we've got the the uh, the Carnival Barker in the GOP nominee doing his role. Maybe is do you? It may be not a concerted effort, but it's an outcome that the his party is able to sort of allow the confusion created by this pronouncement of a rigged election outcome that they're going to use that as a way of draining get out the vote efforts to divert that to some kind of monitoring efforts of the opponent? I certainly think that it's possible because, again, we've seen precedent for people going into 
districts that have a high propensity to vote Democratic and quote unquote monitor. Now, when you're monitoring uh, the voting at a polling place, what actual function or role are you playing? Right? You have no legal standing to challenge anything you see. But your mere presence is a signal to the people that show up to that voting place that they are being watched and that they are somehow being challenged. And so I think that intimidating factor uh, can't be overstated, right, especially when we're talking about people for whom the general costs of voting are higher. So when you add this possibility, oh, I'm going to have to spend X amount of time at this polling location and I'm going to have this and that. And now on top of that, there's going to be a series of people uh, looking upon me as though I'm some kind of criminal or a fraudulent person. I'm not welcome. Right. That's going to factor into people who might be on the fence about turning out or not right, on that right. day. And so I think that's the overall end game. Not to ensure uh, that votes are being cast validly, because you can't even assure that by monitoring. Right. I think it's a matter of adding one more means of discouragement for people that might vote for the opponent on Election Day. Well, well Devin, I'm thinking of there's there's two roles that people serve at the polling place. There's the monitor and there's the get out the vote person, the get out the vote person they're not monitoring it in it's it's not the same function of course i i, I just want to mention i always i love to go to my polling place and i'm going to find out who needs the call to show up and vote and so though that's what i was thinking earlier as my question is whether the the monitors out there are going to drain get out the vote workers who are counter monitoring the monitors and that's that's a kind of a drain because that sure. in certain areas uh, the get out the vote effort is extremely important to that's make right. up on the margins in the battleground counties not, let alone states so that's right that's I what think I'm thinking, that a concerted effort there that certainly can be a, a critical factor I think particularly in this election in which both of the candidates are so widely disliked those get out the vote efforts are going to be even more critical for yeah. people who are pretty non-enthused and you imagine that job is going to be more difficult to get people to vote for who they might presume to be the lesser of two evils in this case. Right. And so any type of added burden faced by those get-out-the-vote drivers is going to cause them to be even more exhausted and have to be even more exhaustive in their efforts. If you've now got to overcome the uh, lack of enthusiasm in this election and the counter-pulling forces of people looking to monitor and an effort discourage voters, that certainly is going to create a, better bur- a bigger burden, which actually makes that role even more critical. And you might imagine in this type of election cycle, uh, there might be even less enthusiasm among people that typically take on that mantle of doing the get-out-the-vote efforts. Right. So, but they're going to be more critical than ever, particularly in these battleground states. Well, I want to, as we commiserate about this, I do want to find there there's got to be some constructive sort of take up charge here can you offer us any kind of remedies any antidotes is there something you think in terms of grassroots or or national efforts that could address this undermining trend well, i think when we look at the radical widespread passing of voter id laws the first key is education about what Uh is and is not required in your state. Particularly if you live in a battleground state, you can probably anticipate there's been some major rule change either since 2012 or since 2010. So for many people, the existing parameters are very different than when they last voted. So the most important role that community leaders and grassroots leaders can play is education making sure that people are aware of the rule change, but also making sure people are empowered to know as long as you have these resources available to you, you can vote and you shouldn't um, you shouldn't back down in the face of any efforts to challenge that vote. I think that's going to be really critical. Well, I had Neil Kelly back on. He always comes to every comes to this show prior to any primary general election. He returned because I really wanted to hear from him as a the Orange County Registrar Voters Administrator, and he's a statewide chapter head, wanted to have him break down what went wrong because, and, and he could explain, you know, there were so many new voters, right. there were m- lots of new laws, new regulations that people are, st- people are still trying to get acquainted with the feature of the primary in California thinning out the, the whole, the number of candidates that are running in any state and federal offices except for the president, what, presidential one. So, and he talked about 
it's it was very complicated. They did they did a great job and a great effort. You can never do it as good as possible. But uh, his concern was that social media got a lot of things wrong. Mm. So how do you is there a way we can get ahead of that? I mean, MTV used to do great public service kind of work to put out their political messages for participation, not any kind of special endorsements. But sure. can you, I'm, when I'm asking you about remedies, I just want to give you a form here, Davin, if there is something, if maybe that social media, if, if people that are consuming social media get back and or if political organizations, activists can track what social media is saying so they can make corrections where the, the wrong information is going out. Sure. Well, uh, that's certainly... <laughs> A serious challenge. I mean, we're talking yeah. about a brave new world in which it's very difficult to control the narrative in social media spaces or any kind of new media or discourse spaces uh, because what's out there is out there. And it's very hard to remove it, it back, once yeah. it's out there. And so I think, it, I think what we need to do is recognize the vital importance of those uh, actual interpersonal, tangible, physical relationships. And we need to leverage those instances in which people are in the same room together and say, despite whatever circles of the Internet you may have been traversing for your political information, here's what you need to know. And so uh, people need to be entering uh, classrooms, college classrooms, and letting people know here's what's needed to vote, right? Not endorsing anyone, just right, saying right. Oh, this is Right, right. There's so much about know, process right? without, yeah, talking anything political. Certainly. Entering classrooms, entering people's workplaces, this is a great opportunity as people are uh, – Taking the last days of summer, where are young people in particular working their summer jobs? Go to those places, right? Find the actual people and communicate with them face to face and let them know, regardless of what you might have seen, uh, this is what you need and this is what you don't need, right? This is what's going to invalidate a vote and this is what's going to make a vote legitimate. And so I understand that's uh, a difficult task, but that brings back to the fore the importance of people to work on the ground. That the right? ground teams. The ground game and that's what I was wondering also whether Trump's it, I actually I've made a vow to myself. I just say the GOP nominee. He's had his name <laughs> mentioned enough to the tune of how many billions of dollars worth of free ads. But, that's right. So I I wonder at whether his bellicose kinds of stumping are a way of compensating for the fact he has no ground game. Right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, which also speaks to the questions which continue to surface over what his end game is, right? Because uh, from who he has staffing his campaign... That's the next question. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, right. Which we'll get into, right? Yeah, to yes. the utter lack of a ground oh, game no, you're in. on the ground operations. This is not how you win or are even viable in an election, right? Certainly not a presidential election. Right. And so we see, well, how did he get this far? Well, having his media savvy certainly went a long way. But you also have to think about the degree to which he was uniquely serviced by this um, inability of the mainstream GOP to consolidate support behind any number of the viable candidates in opposition to him. You combine that with the overwhelming like you mentioned, free press received where he received uh, more media attention than any of his Anybody Fellow combined, nominees combined, right? That's Including certainly going to be a factor, yeah. particularly in a low-information environment <laughs> like the one in which we uh, preside. And so his primary success certainly can't translate on its own to the kind of success you need in the general election game. And the utter pouring of resources behind the kinds of on-the-ground campaign and get-out-the-vote and just infrastructure that you need to be successful in an election posits, do you really even want to win the election are you trying to win the election or are you trying to do you have something else in mind well i i wanted to ask you what does the hiring of stephen bannon the ceo of breitbart signal to you yeah it signals to me that this is someone that has media savvy right someone that has built up a media empire uh for a far-right audience. And so that seems to be what Trump is trying to do, consolidate a following and an audience more so than a voter support base amongst uh, the far-right and amongst people that have uh, very racially conservative views and might even have some connections or sympathies with white nationalism. Now, it stands to reason that 
voting base and no one else doesn't win you election, but it could win you a very profitable empire going forward. It seems to me that that's what he's building towards. And that's troubling that one of our major presidential nominees can game the system to that point. You know, Davin, this just makes me think of when we read more and more about his unwillingness to disclose his tax Tax returns returns, that if there is, in fact, if he's so over leveraged in his real estate assets, if this media enterprise is like this is this is the end game for him. I mean, we know brand has always been the major thing, but so this right. could be him telegraphing in so many ways away from the the real estate portfolio and into the communications, which is vastly more. It's more movable. It's right. more so. And I I just wonder whether you can measure where you thought Roger Ailes started to talk into the GOP nominee's ear. How how long do you think this relationship's been going on that has perhaps the nominee has benefited from the Roger Ailes before the uh, Stephen Bannon kind of contributions? Sure. I certainly think uh, those conversations were made and groundwork was maybe laid out long before Trump's announcement of his candidacy. It seems to me Trump's burgeoning relationship with the media on the right really came to prominence when he started the birther movement right when he questioned barack obama's uh, american citizenship i think trump saw the rather overwhelming response to that effort he made and the cha-ching sign went up in his head right wow this is a message that is resonating with a significant portion of the country how can i leverage this and so certainly i think that probably began in earnest his relationship with ales and fox news specifically but you know right media in general and i think it's something that has continued and certainly uh was instrumental in his success the primary season and i think it's something that he'll look back on as more meaningful and significant to him and his brand than even winning the nomination right getting this kind of uh uninterrupted uh, platform to cultivate this particular type of audience. So, this entrepreneurial long stretch, this long campaign, I see it as leaving devastation in terms of identity politics. And I uh, asked in advance, we were talking about uh, the Ross Duthat editorial in the New York Times I believe is a couple of weeks ago it's the the racial versus the economic divide in this uh, cycle that he offered some really interesting analysis about racial patronage I don't know if we've seen that uh, in recent times and you can tell us what they had he posited that neither of the two major political parties are campaigning around a sufficiently unifying theme fracturing any vestige of coalition that the victor in this election is able to cobble together. What did you think about his piece? Yeah, I would counter with the challenge that is it possible to have a broadly unifying theme that doesn't rely on coalitions? I believe the history of America and its continuing narrative and the reality of America is that it is an assembly of different coalitions and groups that might work uh, together for shared purposes and often work uh, at cross purposes and in conflict with one another. And we need not uh, do away with this idea that politics is about mobilizing groups uh, without saying, oh, that's divisive or that's charged or that's... Uh, It's not unifying. Uh, Groups can be unified in shared purposes, but one of the primary ways through which we think about ourselves and through which we navigate the political uh, system, through which we interpret political attitudes and ideas and form our policy preferences, is on the basis of our understanding of how that policy, how that candidate, how that platform affects our groups to which we belong and how it affects the groups which we view ourselves as in competition with. And so I think his reading of history is uh, perhaps a bit naive in thinking about these different points in which certain groups benefited from particular policy platforms and other groups benefited at different times. So one thing he cites is the New Deal and how uh, many of the major policies of the New Deal excluded minorities, particular African-Americans. 
And then he says, in contrast, many of the policy platforms of the war on poverty in the 60s uh, largely excluded uh, white working class Americans. Right. So he's kind of making this uh, one to one connection between the two. And I don't see that as being a fair comparison. Uh, when you look at the policies, of the New Deal, particularly uh, the FHA, Federal Housing Authority, and the GI Bill for returning veterans, these weren't just remedies for poverty, but these actually instituted uh, a new middle class, right? Taking people from the working class locum and giving them the benefit of home ownership, giving them generational wealth that would be transferable and that would allow them to have something beyond their income. So that's a transformative factor in the economic makeup of the country, one that's transformative for almost exclusively whites. When you fast forward to the war on poverty and thinking about uh, the expansion of social welfare policies to aid the poor, perceived to be disproportionately benefiting uh, minority low-income people, that certainly isn't moving people from poverty to the middle class, right? It's simply... Uh, helping to ease the burden of their poverty. But you're not extending the opportunity for home ownership. Rather, you're creating a formidable housing and a glut of um, Section 8 and projects housing that doesn't give either the same sense of investment and also doesn't give transferable wealth, doesn't create any kind of meaningful wealth, right? And so to equate those different policy eras, I think, does a disservice to the very real racial disparities faced by generations of African-Americans and other minority groups who didn't have access to the types of policy platforms that actually create middle class status. And so when thinking about the platforms not unifying people across groups or class designations, how can you provide a platform that unifies people across these racial groups and class designations when people across these groups and class statuses have very different challenges that they're facing and also very different uh, opportunity structures and very different vulnerabilities. I think we're much better served by someone who's able to speak specifically to the particular needs of each of these uh, racial and class groups rather than try to lump them all together. It's when we try to pursue a purely universalistic approach that we see disparities become widened rather than lessened because those universal approaches are never going to provide the type of specific policy approaches that the particularly vulnerable people are in need of. Wow. Thank you so much for for that display. It was, I noticed that particular editorial it got so much commentary right. and I, I and it was like a delight to see so many people applying themselves it, such it was an intimate political salon over one editorial and here That's and right. you're continuing and I thank you for that so I did ask Peter Navarro who's been carrying a lot of water for the GOP's nominees campaign and he declined. He said he would be available after the election so as not to be drumming up all this business right before the election that the, the administration frowns on. So, But I, I, it would have been kind of cool to imagine the two of you co-teaching a couple of seminars just to mm-hmm. sort of hold that. But I, in your talking about the coalition politics, maybe we could just uh, sort we could go to a um, and a, a very topical example of how Black Lives Matter and Latino immigration issues started to coalesce and that we wouldn't have seen that coming before. They wouldn't have recognized that, but it did occur. It is occurring now. Was that was that an example you would consider? Uh, certainly in the sense that by uh, acknowledging that distinct groups in America have distinct needs and perhaps limitations on the opportunities available to them, that doesn't mean that they can't enter into coalition, that they can't have areas of agreement with other groups, right? So oftentimes what we find is that when we look at any particular group's trajectory through uh, the story of the U.S., right, and Mm -hmm. the kind of legal and political and structural obstacles placed in their way and the efforts they made through judicial challenges, legal challenges, and maybe mass insurgent movements to overcome those obstacles, what we find is that there's great overlap in the ways in which different groups are treated. So in the case of Black Lives Matter and this question of whether blacks are receiving equal or unfair treatment at the hands of police, whether there are a confluence of uh, legal protections and judicial protections for police when they engage in violent behavior against blacks that um, 
they don't have the same protections when they engage in that behavior against non-blacks. We do see an overlap with the case of Latinos who are also being racially profiled regardless of their immigrant status and instances of Latinos having violent encounters with police and not getting the same types of judicial legislative remedies. Right. So certainly we can see opportunities for a coalition, but we also need to recognize that there are very real differences of ideology or differences of material circumstance between groups right. that might also cause them to view each other as potential uh, opponents or members in conflict with one another rather than compromise. It's uh, We get into troubled waters when we start to think, oh, all minority groups are uh, automatic coalition partners, right? Or everyone of a certain class status is of is of the same mindset, right? We have to recognize the ways in which uh, racial narratives and cues, uh, especially the way we see them play out in the rhetoric of this charged election season, right? They create lines of division, whether real or artificial, that have to be navigated. And so I think that's part of the challenge or the problem with this criticism of, oh, well, no candidate has a unifying theme. How do you come up with a unifying theme when the ways in which we kind of treat the different groups in America indicates that they're not united? Right, right, right. right. Well, Davin Phoenix, it's been such a pleasure having you sit in with us today on the identity politics, disenfranchisement, voter intimidation, voters' rights. I really thank you for coming down today. Thank you. It's been uh, great to talk about these issues, and I hope that everyone continues to speak constructively about these issues. We shall, and I know you're not teaching next fall, but you what will you be teaching in the next which quarter? In the winter, I'll be teaching black politics, and in the spring, I'll be teaching class on mass media and politics and the introduction to race and ethnicity in the U.S. All right. Well, this is the podcast for your website, for your classes. We're going to drum up business, <laughs> fill up that class. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We are going to be back in just a gif. I'm going to dial up Linda Tang with the Candy Commission. Stay tuned. Hard times in the city In a hard town by the sea Ain't nowhere to run to Thank you for staying tuned. Nina Simone, Baltimore. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Kennedy Commission Project Manager Linda Tang. She completed both her undergraduate and graduate degrees at UCI's Urban and Regional Planning Department. And Linda draws upon her experiences in the housing development industry to engage community participation and spread awareness of affordable housing needs in Orange County. She worked in the beginning of a a project in Santa Ana, building broader community engagement in the city, supporting the research and education efforts related to affordable housing and redevelopment. Some of her work and commitment is informed by her personally benefiting from housing stock that she describes herself as affordable housing. Linda Tang comes to us from the Kennedy Commission offices to talk about this dwindling supply of affordable housing in Costa Mesa, among other places. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Linda Tang. Thank you so much, Claudia, and thank you. KCI for giving us the opportunity to provide an update and follow up with what's been happening since I spoke the last time around. We did. It was in uh, it was April seven, and folks, you can check out that podcast at askaleader.com. That was last April when Linda Tang and Kathy Esfahani covered on the show this disturbing trend of this, as I said, dwindling supply of affordable housing unit in Costa Mesa, among others. The Motor Inn is emptying out its residents to make way for deluxe housing. So tell us, uh, what is at stake for these long-term residents? Well, a lot of them are just really desperate to find affordable housing in the city. Um, the Costa Mesa Motor Inn is currently the largest motel um, with 236 units, and last year the city approved um, the Motor Inn's owner's proposal to demolish the motel and construct um, market-rate luxury condos in its place. Um, it will be 224 new units, but 20 units will be set aside for moderate-income families. And honestly, that is just not affordable to many of the lower-income households that are living at the Costa Mesa Motor Inn. Um, 
we're looking at one-bedroom rents at the moderate level that would range around $1,600 to $2,000 per month, which is pretty close to market rate rents, honestly. And in a recent article from the OC Register, um, it found that large apartment complexes in Costa Mesa averaged around $1,900 a month, which is really out of reach for a lot of the long-term um, tenants who are living at the Costa Mesa Motor Inn. So what is the head count? Now, I don't want to be so, so uh, reductionist there, but I, there are, you were telling me they're, they're down to about 10 or 20, that's households, not residents, because there's, there's families of five in some of those motel units, right? Correct. So um, yesterday, a lot of the, those who are still staying there were served with eviction notices, and so I think there's about 10 or no more than 20 households who are at the Motor Inn. Wow. And where is the Kennedy Commission doing the research to follow where they are disappearing to? Because they, are they disappearing into automobiles or they're lengthening their commute to where there's more affordable housing in the Inland Empire? What, what are the choices they've been taking up? Yeah, because rents at the motel has been uh, at the motel have been so affordable to many households. Um, it's been so expensive to just find alternative housing in the city, um, especially for those who are just making ten dollars an hour, and um, for the seniors and those who are disabled who are just relying on their SSI checks. So I've been hearing some family members. I know one household. Um, she's a mother of, uh, of four little children. She moved all the way out to Fullerton. And yet she commutes back to Costa Mesa to work at the um, Rite Aid that's across the street from the Motor Inn um, because that's the job that she's had for a while and she couldn't find a way to transfer out. So she moved out of the city, to, um, but then, and yet her job is still um, in the city. And Linda, that takes, brings up some real obvious practicalities. She could maybe have had lunch during a break. She could check in on her children. She could be doing some latchkey kind of creative work, but she can't do that. She's commuting all the way from Fullerton. Correct. And it's, you know, and the reason why she's commuting all the way from Fullerton is because she said she was lucky. She couldn't find housing elsewhere. No one would accept her because she had bad credit. And that's that's an important point to, point, um, to, to highlight because many of these residents living at the motel have bad credit or prior evictions on the record that keeps them from being able to find and secure rental apartments in the city. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening in now um, know that being a renter is such a competitive process, um, especially when vacancy rates are so low in Orange County um, and the demand for housing is so high. So renting at a motel really just bypasses the credit checks and overlooks the evictions on the record. But it's so hard, especially if you have a large family. I mean, there's another household at the Motor Inn who told me that he had um, he has two sets of twins under the age of seven and another one-year-old. And for him, um, it's a bigger uphill battle for him because it's so hard for a landlord to even consider his application with five kids under the age of seven. So it's hugely structural. Yeah, and it's not just families. I mean, we're talking about seniors who felt like the Costa Mesa Motor was on Harbor Boulevard that linked them to bus routes that would take them to um, their doctor's appointments, and now that will be taken away. Um, they're just really nervous about what's going to happen next. A lot of them um, have ended up moving to the motels nearby because um, they had no other options. They really did try um, applying at other rental apartments, but they just got rejected. And the issues with other motels right now is that they're offering summer rates which is, I believe, um, 30 to $40 more per night and even higher on weekends. And the motel rates are close to around, I think, $75 to $100 per night. So it's not affordable at, and by no means, but at the same time, because they're in a situation where their credit is bad or they have evictions on their record that just, you know, they really don't have any place else to go unless, you know, they should, unless they want to sleep in their cars. And there are a couple who are sleeping in their cars, unfortunately, because they really don't have any else anywhere else to go. So where are they allowed to have their cars in Costa um, Mesa? Yeah, so one resident uh, or one former resident was telling me that he moved out and he didn't expect rent to be so high. So the owner did provide a $5,000 move out, $5, move out incentive, 
um, to tenants who moved out. But while it sounds like a lot of money, it really isn't, right? Because many of the re- residents are realizing that $5,000 barely covers their first and last month's rent. And um, the increased rent of the new apartments is just not realistic or sustainable. Some of them have been telling me that they are, they're, they're looking at paying at least $300 or $400 per month than what they were current than what they were paying at the Costa Mesa Motor Inn. So this particular resident or former resident told me that he finds a quiet street, sleeps in his car, but um, he goes to like gyms or to restrooms to just clean up. And he works full time at the TJ Maxx um, home goods across the street. Wow. Um, yeah, just to show like, you know, um, that even though he's a full time worker, unfortunately he just still can't find housing because his, his wages are just so low, he's just making minimum wage. Does his employer, do you think, know he's uh, out of a house, a home? I'm, I don't believe so. I think he's trying to ho- hold that image where, like, you okay. know, um, he didn't want anyone to pity him. Um, he's trying to do the best he can. Um, he feels like he's a little bit luckier because, you know, he doesn't have any kids with him. That's just him and his car. But um, he's very optimistic really? that things will change for him. Wow. Thanks, to, because of what Kennedy Commission and other uh, activists that are coalescing with you, perhaps, perhaps. Well, for those of you who just joined us, I'm speaking with Kennedy Commission Project Manager Linda Tang here on an update of the rapidly declining affordable housing stock in Costa Mesa and around this, the county here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming on the web at KUCI.org. So you're talking about their, the choices of their the scattering at this point, then there's going to be more motel complexes that, that are going to flip into redevelopment, into market rate, deluxe housing. Could you post us on what is the status of the Kennedy Commission's legal challenge to these land use conversions in Costa Mesa? Mm-hmm. So I can't really speak on the specifics of a lawsuit, but right now the city recently approved general plan amendments or they updated the general plan and have identified certain sites where they would put an overlay, um, a residential incentive overlay on certain motels that would allow the owners to convert their motels into residential developments. And for us, the biggest issue is that, you know, a lot of these motels have been really last resort housing for many households, lower income households who would otherwise be at risk of homelessness. And I I understand that a lot of owners have said that this is their business and they have a right to shut it down. But at the same time, the city does have discretionary approvals. Right. And and they provide development incentives that would facilitate and allow these proposed residential developments to move forward. And by providing the development with such significant development incentives, such as a rezone or a significant increase in density, the city really should f- ask for a community benefit in return, such as requiring the development to set aside at least 20% of the units to be affordable to lower-income households, or more importantly, a, a relocation plan should be required to ensure that residents who will be displaced will not be at risk of being homeless. And so that's that's where you are. And I, are you... Now, you're not going to be involved directly with the Costa Mesa municipal general election, but is, shall we say, between you and me and the lamppost, that <laughs> it's that the composition of the council is what's key in changing the ordinances and the political will to allow, uh, to set aside up to 20% of the housing stock for more affordable units. So we have tried to request the city to implement a policy or program that would ask developers to set aside a certain percentage, which is 20%, to to facilitate the development of housing because we understand there's not a lot of development opportunities in the city, and yet they're looking at adaptive reuse or looking at underutilized parcels. So that's where the opportunities are. And we're saying, you know, there's a lot of developments that are happening in the city, and that's the opportunity to just set aside a percentage of units, but the majority council did not support that. And so here we are now. Um, we're still trying to push push them to consider it, but it hasn't happened yet. Okay. 
Well, this is still a work in progress, folks. I'd like for you to give uh, listeners a chance to follow through on what maybe next meetings at the Costa Mesa City Council or where they could get involved with the Kennedy Commission's activism. Give us that as we close the interview here. So right now there is a lawsuit on this, and it won't happen until next year in February. The date hasn't been set till then, but, you know, I've been always big on telling residents to go to your council hearings and take that opportunity to let them know that there is, you know, a lot of households, low-income households who need help, that there are opportunities for us to make change and be, and be able to do that in a successful way. I think that the more comments and the more support from the public that, you know, the city council may change their minds and support what we're trying to do, which is to really increase housing options for all economic services of the community. And how can listeners reach you? You can definitely go on our website, www.kennedycommission.org, or you can directly email me at Linda T. KennedyCommission.org. Okay, that is all essential information. We'll put that on the podcast summary. Linda Tang, thank you for your time and helping spread awareness as to how these people are going to continue to struggle amidst this rather dismal trend. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Claudia. Okay, good luck with all of this. Thank you. All right. This is my wrap here. If you missed any portion of this or other shows, you can either go to my website, askaleader.com, or subscribe to all the KUCI podcasts at KUCI.org. Next week, Cal State Fullerton professor Jilu Liu, accompanied by Master Liu, will offer a vigorous testimonial of how mastery of Tai Chi ended her severe back pain without surgery. Then UCI senior lecturer Ken Chu will talk about his research entitled America's Smartest Neighborhood. A demographer explores University Hills, the nation's largest on-campus faculty housing complex. Shannon, it's been Hello. good to have you with us today. Any observations you want to uh, offer here? Oh, no, I just wanted to say thank you for having me on your show. It's very great to learn more about political disparities in voting population as well as um, the housing issues going on in Costa Mesa. So thank you very much for having me here. And it's quite an honor to have airwaves and to have listeners who are listening now and any who decide they want to hear that podcast. So that's right. these are amazing tools. Welcome to them, okay? Thank you. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.